Welcome back to the Sustainable Stories podcast. Sustainable Stories is here to bring you the stories behind sustainability in our communities. From big to small, practical to theoretical, we're exploring the people and projects that are working to make our world a more sustainable, equitable, and healthy place to live. Welcome back to the Sustainable Stories podcast. My name is Jenna Inglot, and I will be your host for today's episode. I am really excited about our guest feature today, um, mostly because so far on the podcast, we've featured folks from such a variety of backgrounds, and so far, everyone has has spent some time connecting their sustainability story back to their childhood um, and you know something that sparked their interest and their passion from their childhood. So I am so excited today to have with me Claire Miller, who is the founder of Wilderness French Fresh Air Learning. And she designs nature-based learning programs. And I'm just, I don't know enough about this, um, but I'm really interested. So thank you, Claire, for agreeing to be on the podcast today. Hi, Jenna. Thanks so much for having me. I'm just really excited to be included in the conversation. Awesome. So I'm not going to tell anybody any more about you. I'm going to let you do some of the talking. So just start us off and, and tell us a bit about yourself and who you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, so I'm joining you from Saskatoon at Home Office Headquarters, um, Treaty 6 Territory. Um, and I am somebody that is absolutely connected. I'm a, a biophiliac. I love uh opportunities to connect to nature and I'm wired to learn experientially um, and by doing I like to be moving around I have a hard time sometimes sitting through a movie <laughs> to be um, active and so I'm really wired to learn that way and teach that way and I have this really strong inner compass that is very loud voice in my uh, ear that keeps me um, I think focused on facilitating nature connection and uh, helping people, um, I guess, gain access to nature. And that passion is this continuous thread. And despite sometimes my attempts to do otherwise, this inner compass keeps like reining me back on course. Um, so I have had a pretty wonderful uh, life so far uh, in terms of just being, I think, nurtured and having this wonderfully nurtured um, connection to nature from an early age. I was so fortunate uh, to grow up just south of Prince Albert um, on, on farmland that was leased by Ducks Unlimited. And my parents um, really valued, they were teachers and they valued us, my brothers and I, having time outside. And so were the parents that would send us outside and once in a while even lock the door and be like, don't come in until you put your hours in outside. I also had a grandfather who was German and valued, uh, like he grew up in Germany and valued us being outside and hard, um, thought we needed to do labor or help him with labor type jobs of gardening and hauling wood and that kind of thing um, outside. And so he would insist that we'd be outside with us. And so I have these mentors and they're not the traditional type of like what you might think in terms of the uh, Rachel Carson type nature mentor, but people that valued it. And then I think our childhood had a structure that really involved a lot of time and unstructured play and exploration outside. So I was the kid that had a raft and we called it a slew at 
at the time, but there was all these wetlands um, on, in the farmland where, where we lived and it just had ultimate freedom to roam and explore. And so that was, you know, we had pets and I'm using air quotation, but pet snakes um, <laughs> that we kept under the stairs, a snake family. We'd, you know, find the salamanders. I had this raft that I would raft across the slough and I had an ongoing battle with the beaver family that lived there because they were cutting down the uh, trees that I like to build my fort with. So I would try to block their beaver runs. And so it was uh, sort of a, a dirty, gritty love of wetlands that started at an early age. And I'm you know, grateful to my parents and my grandfather for, for making that possible. Um, and then I think I grew up and went to a rural school and didn't know, um, you know, that I didn't have the language of sustainability, didn't have the language of like environmental education, but I did have some wonderful teachers. I had a grade four teacher who was teaching us about, and this is the eighties. So she was, you know, um, I think a positive example in that time of environmental education, but we were fundraising to save the rainforest from (laughs) those bad people that were cutting it down. So far from like place-based education, (laughs) but it, at that young age, um, I think woke a concern in me that um, there was, humans were causing irreparable damage to the earth and that we really need to step up and and, uh, take some action. Um, So if you fast forward, um, you know, through high school, and I, I think I just knew that I was excited to learn about the world and, and to go into a pr- profession that uh, involved, you know, stewardship for the earth. And I remember um, signing up for biology in university and just being really like disappointed that I couldn't learn the textbook way very well and inventing songs to try and memorize it and being a bit disheartened. Um, but what I did find was I learned so much as an experiential learner, just traveling. So I had the opportunity to live in Germany as an au pair and was, um, really impressed learning about how they do kindergarten, how they recycled at that time. And I was in like a super small town of 800 people. And so that was those experiences. I had the opportunity of living in Germany, of living in Egypt as an English tutor, um, living in Southeast Asia and, and learning from how things are, are done in a more, um, you know, I guess, ecologically literate <laughs> kind of way, I think shaped uh, some of my, my journey and then was so fortunate to come across this certificate in the ecological education program uh, early on in my undergrad. And that was an eye opener, like aha moment for me. I was like, this is what it, you know, this is the direction I need to take. I hadn't been interested in being an educator because I'd seen my parents be kind of um, like stressed, I guess, at times they were in admin. And so then it, it was a light switch that flicked on taking that class and, and reading, you know, David Orr and reading, um, you know, about these authors that were talking about the important role education had to play in connecting people to the to uh, the natural or systems. And so then I think that was this kind of guiding light forward. It's like, I am meant to be a teacher (laughs) and (laughs) this can work. Uh, So then I sought out, well, what's the ideal program? And it was obvious I needed to go into this program at Lakehead, um, which was outdoor experiential environmental and ecological education um, with the teaching areas of like geography and environmental studies. And Again, I just 
ended up with these professors and with this class that we had the most, um, I think, transformative learning experiences uh, where we were talking about, you know, what it means to be, you know, looking at our own ecological footprint. And this was, you know, I think 2004. Um, and what it means to be, you know, using oil and what that means, how much water is involved. And I think it uh, furthered my learning and was so beneficial um, to be in that group and really nurtured in that space. Uh, before I headed into the teaching profession, I, I really felt um, like it was such a gift going forward uh, to have that community. Um, and I, you know, was a teacher in the Northern Light School Division in um, Bear Creek and Beauval and La Ronge for a few years. Um, and, you know, knew that there was real opportunity within teaching to connect people to place, but I think wanted to continue learning. And so applied for my master's and took a, a Claire year off. Um, but in that year, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Otesha program. I joined the Otesha program. Yeah. Um, which is a uh, cycling um, theater troupe or was, and we taught about uh, sustainability through this play that we performed. So we would cycle. We started off in Winnipeg and we cycled. I cycled to Toronto, but our end of our performances uh, was in Sudbury. And so we were a group of 15. We were all women in this case, and it was fall and we'd cycle you know, like a hundred kilometers to the next place. We carry everything we needed and then roll in. We'd be like wearing our, all these weird outfits, super high vis <laughs> and keeping warm and dry. Yeah. yeah roll, roll in and perform. And I think that in terms of sustainability um, was transformative as well, because again, we, the, yeah, the goal was to be providing these educational experiences, but I think we, the, the performers and the cyclists, the facilitators, we did the most learning and had the most growth because we had, we operated by consensus and we were trying to uh, reduce our own footprint as much as possible. So we were eating largely vegan and that was by consensus. I was coming from La Ronge and there's like not that super vegan eating options. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we were, you know, just deciding well, should we all carry our waste with us? And so, yeah, we should. So we're biking with like Ziplocs of our garbage in our panniers. And so I think that was a transformative experience as well. Um, and then did after that, uh, decide to go into do my master's at uh, York University. And I'm not sure how much you want me to go into, but um, that again, was a community that, and a learning experience. And I'm so grateful for my uh, professors and the group of people. We, we were there during, there was a three month strike at York and I was in environmental studies and we were, had only been there, moved to Toronto from, uh, you know, Northern Saskatchewan and didn't, you know, I had committed to living in Toronto, sold my car and that kind of thing. And so we had this three month strike. And so then we banded together and started educating ourselves and that was transformative too and think oh, what do we need to learn <laughs> so, um yeah, yeah. Like, you probably Very want cool. me to feed ahead a little bit but no no this is great this is so I think this is so important to understanding sort of how we end up in the place that we're in and you've said the word transformative and transformative education experience so much throughout your own story. And I think um, 
yeah, I think that's, that's really powerful. And it's, it's important um, in terms of how we end up interested in, in the work that we do. And especially when it comes to sort of environment and sustainability and this larger, you know, need for us as, as human beings to care about each other and about the planet. So um, I'm curious, I don't want to, I don't want to fast forward at all, but I'm curious, can you tell us a bit about what Wildernook Fresh Air Learning is? Um, and then maybe, so, you know, what it is, and then maybe sort of how your path ended up doing that type of work um, back here, I guess, as well. So, Okay, sure. Um, so Wildernook Fresh Air Learning is a local small business. I never thought when I started being an adult that I would want to start a business, <laughs> um, but it's designed to be social purpose. Um, and the goal being, you know, that we facilitate experiences that help people connect uh, to nature. So that idea of doing um, designing experiences and doing the outreach to specific demographic groups uh, so that they feel um I guess, welcome and invited and that there's an experience uh, designed for them to be able to participate in. So whether that is, you know, nature grandparenting and grandparent and grandchild participate, um, or that is, you know, a group of new Canadians, or it is a group of toddlers. Um, it's, it's customized for a group. And sometimes what happens is, um, you know, if Parks Canada or Sask Outdoors or Nature Saskatchewan has an event that's for the the public and we think great all the public is invited not necessarily everybody will feel like that is uh, suited or tailored to them so it's not always like ideal for a three-year-old or <laughs> yeah um, <totally>. so yeah. <laughs> we're looking at um some of those I guess uh, the question of like what would place-based education look like what would nature education look like and you could pose that to any number of demographic groups and I really enjoy that exercise of um you know, if, if somebody is in a, a wheelchair or somebody is really into, um, you know, video gaming or somebody doesn't speak the language, how, how would you approach place-based education for that, um, that group and facilitate for them? Because I think that's a bridge that we need to extend uh, to in order yeah. to make it accessible for more different people. So um, in terms of Wilderneck, we founded four years ago and it was on my mat leave um I really felt this sense of urgency we have a five-year-old uh, now and I took two years off to be with him um prior to that I was teaching in um Saskatoon Public Schools in the EcoQuest program and that was my dream job uh, it was absolutely amazing it's a grade eight integrated program place-based ed um and I think I was really on like fire from in a positive, passionate way. Uh, we facilitated these transformative learning experiences. And then I was no longer operating in that context and I really missed it. So then my new context is with these small people that can't go as far and, um, you know, they can't be out as long, but you can still apply, I think, some of the, the same pedagogy and the same methods uh, just in a very different way. So that, um, I think was the beginning of Wilderneck and <laughs> it was a bit of a, a curse at the time. Our son was like not 
nursing or sleeping very well and involved a lot of he's very very attached and it kind of drove me nuts he'd be nursing and I would be like I could be in a vagina and back by now like I am <laughs> not good at sitting still and I'd be in the recliner and I'd just be like ah, this is driving me nuts but during that time I spent a lot of time just like hashing out and thinking through my wheels turning about and planning and building wilderness in my brain so um it's grown but initially it started with um nature grandparenting that was uh the focus of my master's thesis um and that research looked at like what role grandparents can play in being active nature mentors in um their grandchildren's lives so that was like the starting point um and I had a really wonderful group of women in my life as I was getting started who coached me and they said you kind of want to go a little broader than just uh, intergenerational learning trust me um so I'm grateful to them that I did make it broader because then um it has evolved and so now we have other uh, weekly programs that carve out that nature space for uh, the participants, but then we're also designing um, experiences, doing some uh, contract work and consulting, and you know, um, also working on um, you know a product and um, other other branches of Wilderness as well. So it is growing and evolving. And now, more recently, um, with the pandemic and the the real interest um, and demand from families to have some some experiences that support the curricular learning of students. That's another way that we've kind of pivoted again and and uh, looked at, well, how can we use this as a real opportunity and a gift um, as opposed to like, this is a, just a, a restriction. And I think just kind of reminding ourselves that these restrictions can be opportunities to be creative as well yeah, um, has, been, sure. has been useful for us. Yeah. So um, yeah, each year brings some new learning and I, and it's very, very, uh, refreshing to continue to be able to design with Wilderness. So uh, yeah. thank you, you know, for, for asking about it. <laughs> That's incredible. Oh my gosh. I have so many questions. I, that is one thing. So I, I don't have children. Um, and you know, it's, it's something Matt and I talk about often in terms of um, starting a family is like, you know, their education and ensuring that they have these, you know, these types of opportunities. So, um, you know, I'm so grateful that, that you're doing this and that there's, there's really a focus on groups that may otherwise not have access or opportunities to have nature-based or place-based learning. So that's incredible. Um, so can you tell me a bit about, so when you say, um, and it, you can pick a group, it could be any group, but what does the, what does the nature-based learning look like? Like if, you know, you're out, I see some of your stuff on your, your Instagram story, which I'm always so curious about, but, um, you know, just for our listeners who may not be as familiar with what that term means, um, you know, what does that look like in a, in a practical sense? Like you have a group of toddlers say, and you're, you're, you're out somewhere. Um, what does that sort of nature-based structured or unstructured what does that look like um for those those participants sure uh so for our nature tots program we actually broke it into a junior and a senior because there's such different developmental stages between you know with a one-year-old as opposed to a two-year-old so we have we're we're evolving in that regard but just as an example we would have a lot of you know, play some songs. Uh, generally, we're mobile, but only 
toddler speed mobile. So the, uh, if you would picture an interpretive hike, say in a national park, you would probably walk a you know, great distance and then the interpreter would stop and chat with you. Well, we do that, but on a very small scale. So we've been um, one of Saskatoon's naturalized sites and uh, the participants, for example, may discover that there are some mirrors. So this is with a, a caregiver. They discover that there's some mirrors and what do you look, you and nature together, what does you and your friendship with nature together look like in the mirror? So they're holding the mirror up and seeing an image of themselves as nature. And that's designed to, you know, help that idea of belonging and comfort and that message of, well, this is a, a comfortable place to be. And we would toddle along a little further and, um, you know, we might at some, depending on what the theme was, if it was, um, you know, giving back to nature, maybe we're, we would take some seeds and we bury them. Um, or we'd say, well, seeds like to travel, like let's take this seed on a little trip and carry it with us. We've done um, practice stewardship by having a bucket and they, you know, is, are able to dunk their sponge in the bucket and then walk over to a tree and give the tree some water. And it's, you know, there's kind of water everywhere, but it's, they can get really, um, into that idea of nurturing and caring and practicing uh, that rule. We've enjoyed taking cone seeds for a walk. Like we've tied strings to the cones to take the seeds for a walk. <laughs> and That's then we, amazing. The kids will go home and they cone, some of them name them like Coney or whatever. And they take these cones for a walk. Um, so it is very different than teaching grade 11 in, in environmental science, but I think it's, the children can, you look at paring down some of these concepts um, to where they're at developmentally, which is often like the role playing um, and they're playing pretend, they're playing with imaginary worlds with, uh, you know, little um, objects that they've found. Yeah. It, you can certainly apply it to, to different age groups and different de developmental stages. So that's a, a little glance yeah. at what the nature talk looks like. That's so neat. I just, yeah, I think about my own experience my own background and similar to your story I grew up rurally um, you know grew up with a farming background spent tons of time outdoors which doesn't always necessarily lead to you know kind of a deeper interest in our relationship with nature but my dad my mom too but she was she was quieter about it but my dad um, was you know we would go we would just be walking from our house to the bush behind our house we'd be going to cut wood or something for the winter um and he would see something and he was also very interested in plants and wildlife and so he knew a lot and had a lot to share but it wasn't just the sharing it was his level of enthusiasm about whatever we were seeing in nature so if it was a moose or it was a uh, a certain species of grass that doesn't typically grow somewhere or whatever it was he was just so enthusiastic about that and about telling us about it and so as a child I was so excited about all of these things I was seeing and um, I remember once I got to the age where I I started started to see that that was maybe a little bit strange. Like I, not all of the people that I spent time with were as excited about seeing that random species of bird. Um, but I, I look at my path and sort of where I've ended up and 
that those moments, like those moments were so transformative in my life. Um, and so just the way that you described that and, and even just the enthusiasm in your voice of working with those young people and little, little, really little young people um, and sort of fostering their excitement to spend time outdoors and be in nature and be comfortable in nature and, um, you know, not be afraid of things. And all of that is, is so key to, I believe, um, you know, building the next generation of, of caring, loving, nature loving, but also just loving in general people. So yeah, that's amazing. It is. And it's, it's, you know, we're in this time that the climate change news and the pandemic news and you know, the Black Lives Matter, like it's, it's heavy times and the opportunity to work with children and to do the work of connecting, helping connect to place is unbelievably like refueling because they, the children give us permission to play and play relieves tension like you wouldn't believe. And so it just like is the cycle of like, we're bringing the energy, they're bringing the energy. So it's a great, yeah, it's a real treat. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, we talked a bit about this when we when uh, we were first chatting earlier, Claire. But um, you talked about about nature grandparenting and that sort of being the focus of your your thesis work. But um, I'm I'm curious a bit more about that. I mean, again, I just shared that story of my my parents, and I had a similar relationship with my grandparents. Um, but you know, where, what is some of the, I'm sure there's kind of a larger understanding to why that, that sort of intergenerational learning is so, so important. Um, but yeah, I'm curious about the, the nature grandparenting program and sort of your, your thoughts on, on, um, you know, how that works and, and why it's necessary. Yeah. Um, I think I'll just briefly mention that, uh, during my research, um, on intergenerational learning, I, I, inter- I, I interviewed grandparents who were involved in a nature program in High Park in Toronto. It was called Nehi Naturalist. And there was four grandparents and their grandchildren involved. And so I interviewed them about their childhood, um, about their rationale for why they um, wanted to take their grandchild into the program and, you know, their values and very much they had... Um, a nature mentor and a close relationship and fond childhood memories. And so that was, you know, 60, 70 years ago for them. And it, it was shaping and informing their uh, grandparenting practice and how they um, were wanting to be nature mentors for their grandchildren. So that is something that childhood piece spans um, decades, generations. It's something um, we hear from the research that those age, you know, three to five is some of the most important years that you can invest in, in terms of, um, you know, a child's brain and their understanding. Um, so I think that that was very eye-opening and, and the grandparents were, um, interested in participating with their grandchild because they wanted their own grandchild to have those nature connection experiences. And they were particularly concerned that living in Toronto, they would, wouldn't have the access, um, the unstructured play and the comfort that they had. So they were really taking an active role to carve out space and time that maybe otherwise wouldn't happen. And yes, yeah, Saskatoon is smaller than Toronto, but I think some of those same limitations and restrictions certainly apply. We have, and you know, we're hearing 
that children have reduced access and that's due to heightened supervision that is due to sometimes over scheduling um and just i think the norm that um children don't just go out on their own like i had the opportunity to run and you know my yeah. parents didn't always know exactly where we were um so we also have this increased uh segregation so age segregation that's happening um, just in general, where and actually increasingly during the pandemic as well. So we have the working age adults and things are really focused on the working age adults. Um, and then we have the children that are in care or in school um, or in extra cur. And often that is separate from um, our senior population who are, you know, maybe still whether they're working or they're participating in recreation, but they're living on their own, uh, potentially separate from, from their, their grandchildren in a separate, you know, um, city. So those, I, I guess the silos according to age happen during the day and you can see it. Um, you know, when you go on to campus with young children, it's like, Oh, there's a child here because it's a certain age. Right. Um, and so what used to be very natural in terms of opportunities for, uh, relationship, relationships and relational learning across generations now uh, requires, I think, more um, engineering or like more intention for it to actually happen. Like there never used to mm-hmm. be any sort of need for something like nature grandparenting because there were so many more um, just regular everyday opportunities for interaction. Um, and so in my research, um, you know, really learned that we can situate learning and nature experiences and, um, you know, environmental learning, you can situate that within a relationship. And I think grandparents, depending on the context and the family, but can be in an ideal position um, because they're not, um, I guess, focused on some of those immediate needs, such as like what I'm doing with my own son, Um, you know, does he have shoes? Does he have three masks for the day? Does he have a water bottle in his bag? Whoops, the car seat isn't quite attached, right? Those kind of like primary things. Um, The grandparent is maybe in a position to come in and play and have that curiosity, that wonder um, to goof around, to sing. Um, So I think that the goal while realizing it's not feasible for every family is to, um, highlight that we I guess that there's a a space for grandparents that they can play a role that you don't need to be a nature expert um, to provide that invitation and yeah I think just there are a lot of um, you know things that are mommy and me well that just can add more onto the the parent plate when oftentimes it, it could be a better fit to bring in a grandparent and to have them be a be a nature mentor. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a really beautiful opportunity. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of my own, um, grandparents in my childhood. Um, but I, I feel so grateful. Um, and I know they do too. Both of my brothers have small children. Um, you know, there's, they're all under six and my grandparents are still very active. And so they're very active in their great grandchildren's lives. And so we get to see that, um, all the time. And it's, it's really, really, it's really special. It's really powerful. It's also exhausting to watch my like 82 year old grandpa have more physical 
energy and active ability than me. <laughs> so I'll, yes, see him with, I'll see him with my two-year-old nephew and I'm like, why aren't you exhausted? <laughs> like this kid has so much energy. Yeah. Anyways, but it is, it's interesting because I think as you talked about before, things being energizing, um, you know, even just watching that interaction, I know it's, it's so great for, for my nieces and nephews, but it's also so energizing for my grandparents too. So um, that's Mm -hmm. amazing that you're sort of creating a space and also, um, you know, creating an opportunity, creating a space, but sort of sharing why, you know, why that's important. And it might be something that, you know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but I sort of feel like it's something that our, our elders, our seniors, um, you know, they do see it as important and they maybe are trying to find a space to do that. And it's not always as straightforward as we might think. So that fact that you're creating that space is, is incredible. So yeah, very cool. Um, Thank you. Yeah, that's so neat. So one, one last question I want to ask you is, um, where do you go from here? Like you were kind of mentioning earlier, the different things that Wildernook is doing and working on. Um, but yeah, do you have any sort of exciting new things in in the pipeline or or what are you sort of thinking um, the future of Wildernook is going to look like? We do. We have an exciting uh, project that's been percolating for a couple of years now. So this is, I think, the chance, a chance to talk, chat about it. Uh, so it's, it's called Punch Buggy Express. <laughs> and what it is, is it's a children's uh, pedal bus. So if you imagine a, um, t- if you were to take a tandem bike and then have uh, 10 people on it, uh, that's designed <laughs> for children. <laughs> so this bus, uh, and it's, it's the idea is like playful, it's physically active. It supports early learning experiences with active transportation. Um, It helps children feel capable of like physically getting themselves to point A to point B. Um, And the idea behind Punch Buggy Express is to uh, provide a um, green or self-propelled transportation option between the child-centric locations that we have in um, the downtown Riverbank. So we have the um, the Playland area in Kinsman Park, we have uh, the Wonder Hub, there is the um, spray, the Rivers, uh, River Landing Spray Park. Uh, and so those are, you know, there's a couple kilometers in between. Uh, so the plan is to have this guided cycling experience for uh, young children to be able to pedal together. I think it's also kind of like carpooling. So there's going to be less of if you've seen kids on Mewasin Trail um it can be a little bit erratic so that'll keep them uh united in that same similar trajectory and then have some interpretive learning stops along the way so um it's a definitely a a different approach than we have done so far because a lot of our programming has been ongoing unless we're hosting an event but um ongoing and we get to work with people um over the course of months and this will be an opportunity for people to have a active transportation, uh, riverbank experience, but it's, it's more of the one off, but I think, um, we're still very excited about it. We feel like it is, um, an innovative solution, uh, for our youngest uh, members of society to be, to be exploring and traveling rather than this idea of you park, you go to your car, you drive, 
you get out yeah, <laughs> um, and you can build, you know, build the fresh air learning and build in some interpretive stops as well. So we're excited about that one, but it was put on hold um, due to the pandemic uh, and just, you know, thinking that we needed to hold off on everything. And now um, we're back uh, starting to work on it and, and we're hoping to have it up and running uh, this summer. Wow, that sounds amazing. I'm really excited to follow along with that that project. I love that idea. I think, again, like you say, active transportation and even feeling comfortable in active transportation. It's something that I'm sure as someone who, you know, grew up rurally and didn't spend a lot of time you know, cycling everywhere because that just I didn't have access to that. Um, I Same biked. Here. I biked, I biked around to the neighbor's place, but like not a far distance. Um, you know, that yeah. sort of starts that kind of spark in in youth as well. Is like, okay, it is. It's it's accessible. It's not dangerous. Like you can ride your bike from place to place. It's it's easy and it's fun and it's exercise and it's learning and yeah that's very cool I'm very excited to to follow along with that project so um thank you for sharing that so I also wanted to say uh and give you the opportunity to say um for our listeners who are excited about Wildernook and excited about Punch Buggy Express um where can they go to learn more like is um I mean, I follow you on social media, but where is the best place to kind of get in touch with you and learn more about Wildernook and more about your programs? Certainly. Uh, well, you're more than welcome to contact me at claire at wildernook.com or on LinkedIn um, to learn more about Wildernook programming. We're at uh, wildernook.com online and on social media at Wildernook. And we have a very fresh, <laughs> just starting to take shape uh, social media account on Instagram uh, for Punch Buggy Express as well. So if you want to kind of see it as it's taking shape, you can follow us there. Awesome. Sounds good. I'll make sure there's a note of all of that in the show notes so that if listeners uh, want to follow along and reach out to you, that they'll be able to do that. So um, huge thank you, Claire. This has been such a great conversation. Um, I also feel it may not be the last time we chat. So I may uh, drag you on to, I may drag you on to a future podcast and maybe post pandemic. um, Yeah. And maybe post pandemic, we can, um, uh, you know, sit on the riverbank and record a podcast somewhere outdoors. I think that would be more enjoyable for both of us. So yes. Can you record a podcast while biking? We should try and see if you can. I totally think you can. (laughs) That would be awesome. (laughs) It's an hour long conversation featuring the wind as we bike from point A to point B. I think that would be so great. (laughs) Let's plan for that. (laughs) Wonderful. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Jenna. Take care. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Sustainable Stories podcast. This podcast is hosted by myself, Jenna Inglot, as well as Roxanne Wagner from Sage Sustainable Solutions Consulting. For a full list of episodes, as well as more information about Sage, check us out online at sagesustainable.com. And as always, we welcome your feedback, thoughts, and suggestions. Catch you next time.